Welcome to the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions. My name is Steve Lambert. Today we've got another great guest. Uh, of course, I'm here with the regular team, Miss Pat Gerardo and Steve Duncombe. And we have a mysterious fourth person in the room. Steve, why don't you explain who we have here? Yes, we have a special guest from Barcelona. Uh, it's our good friend and comrade in creative activism, Leonidas Martin. And Leonidas is here in New York um, because we brought him in to teach a workshop on comedy and activism, which he did, and he did wonderfully, and he was very, very, very funny. <laughs> so, Leo, ¿qué tal? Muy bien. Hi, everyone. <laughs> very happy to be here. We also brought you in because you are a master practitioner. You've been doing this stuff for like 10, 15, 20 years. You're not that old. But. He's not that old. <laughs> he looks younger. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, but almost two decades is true. Yeah. So some people might know of your work. Like the first thing I saw was the um, Yo Mango, where you would teach people how to shoplift by going in and having them do the tango. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, my favorite is um, holding parties in unemployment offices in, yeah. in Spain as a way to sort of mitigate against the culture of depression with the crisis. Yeah. And there's a lot of videos. Where do people see these? Uh, actually, in media.info, you will find all the projects there. And that's you know? E-N-M-E-D-I-O. E yeah. Dot you info. Say, you say, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in honor of Leo as our guest tonight, we went to see a comedy show at, at the Comedy Cellar. Yeah, at the world-famous Comedy Cellar. And the Comedy Cellar is in uh, Greenwich Village. It's been there probably decades, right? I'm not sure when yeah. it opened. And it's actually seen um, some of the greatest comics in history. Um, you know, uh, people like Louis C.K., for example, got his start there and still shows up regularly. We should probably explain why comedy is popular and how it overlaps with popular culture. Because when... You suggested this, Steve. I was like, well, that's that's not really a mainstream thing. The Comedy Cellar is like such a small place. It's not like an arena. So how how how, how did you think about this? Well, I thought, you know, the, you know, comedians are the new rock stars. I mean, what's amazing is how popular comedy has actually become is if you turn on late night TV, for example, not only are there comedians on all the late night, uh, you know, uh, talk shows and late night entertainment shows, but they also have their own specials on HBO, on Netflix and so on and so forth. And that, that really comedy has actually become quite mainstream. And it also there's tours around the country, right? Like these comedians even talked about traveling all over the country. Yeah. So this is a, a it may not be playing in arenas all over the place, but it is sort of reached this level of saturation. Yeah, and we could see that in the audience. I mean, the audience was from all over the United States. They're from Norway. They're from Brazil. They're from France. That poor French guy. Oh, man. <laughs> so many people made fun of him. <laughs> Yet very few New Yorkers in that room. <laughs> and I, I think in this case, too, comedy is an obvious link with activism, especially, you know, if you look at Leo's work at that site and, and uh, even some of the work that that we have on the Center for Art Artistic Activism site, there's always an element of humor. So this is a very easy 
connection for us to make. But I think we're going to try to go a little bit deeper than just making jokes or things like that. Like, how else is this working? Yeah. And again, the idea with all of the pop culture salvage expeditions is to find those things in popular culture and drill down really deep inside of them and find out what are those things that activists can draw upon in order to make our work more enjoyable, more popular, and more effective. So one other small note. What, it is midnight right now. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get. I gotta get up at six o'clock. We went yeah. to the nine thirty show um, and got out at eleven thirty, and then walked over here to record. So if this is one of our more, if we sound a little low energy, that's why. But we're gonna do our best. We're gonna do our best. Okay. So, um, so where do you, where where should we start? Well, for me, this is the first time that I've been in a comedy club for probably 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious that this was now the new popular because it wasn't for a very long time. So it was very interesting to be in the, in that space. One that it was full of Americans and Europeans. I, I guess my first observation was all the men that were performing mm-hmm. on the space and then how that shaped kind of the comedy and the the women as the brunt of the jokes for the majority of what we heard. And for me, it, it's not an easy, it, this is probably one of my hardest um, uh, pop culture salvage expeditions to try to connect what to get out of this as an activist. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that that oftentimes you will see a female comedian up there, but By and large, the comedians are male and they're white. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that one of the things that I noticed is that they would go off on their own sort of separate branches. But the core of the comedy was about sex and it was about relationships and it was about the relationship between the sexes. And I really was thinking about that in terms of, well, why do they keep coming back to that? Why do they keep coming back to that? And so what do you guys think about why are so much comedy about sex. And if it's not about sex, it's about <laughs> and it's about piss mm-hmm. and it's about bodily functions. <laughs> well, I mean, comedy is always about two things, truth and pain, right? <laughs> so when I went tonight to the show, I was expecting which kind of truth and which kind of pain are we going to watch here, right, in New York? And um, for me, I mean, the difference, if I compare it with, you know, Europe or Spain, um, to the humor I was actually watching tonight, it's like, I mean, the truth and the pain they were actually working with was based on mostly, you know, uh, the multicultural society that you live here in, in New York, right? So it was, I mean, like 80% of the jokes were about rage, you know? And how we can live together being different, you know what I mean? And that was very interesting to me to see it because, I mean, they were like some of the the comedians tonight, they could actually go very deep into the truth and the pain that actually that uh, living together conflict uh, means. So um, also what I was uh, seeing tonight was like... um, how this funny conflict they were, you know, representing on the stage were actually dramatic conflicts, all of them, right? Because that's also comedy. Comedy is about drama with some laughs. But it's a drama, 
That's and they were working very good with some dramas and some of them very contemporary, like you know, police brutality or racism or, or uh, yeah, stuff like that. Also, what you were mentioning now, these um, sexual conflicts, right? They are always there because th that's easy if you make comedy. Uh, this is, you know, in the sexual fields is where you can find lots of pain and, and truth. So <laughs> it's easy to use that always. It's also something we all have in common, right? I mean, that that's the thing. It's, it's like... You could go any place and where if we went to, say, Spain, for example, we, we might not see as many jokes around multiculturalism, as many jokes about racism. But I guarantee you we'd see the jokes around sex and the jokes around, totally. around, yeah. around communication between the sexes because those are the things, the sort of lowest common denominator. And we can always come back to the la those laps because I think what Leo said is very important, this idea of that's where so much pain resides. That's where so much sort of misperception and the anguish of everyday life exists. And that becomes the sort of fruit, which then you, if we can laugh about it, we get to let go of that a little bit. I think that I, the, it's an easier connection for me, maybe. I realize maybe that's just my perspective because I, the, I've probably seen more live comedy maybe than you guys, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd seen... Aziz Ansari came uh, and did, like, the surprise appearance. I've seen him at a small club in Chelsea before, so I was like, oh, cool, this is happening again, you know? <laughs> and, and like, a lot of... I, I've just seen a lot of comedy. I think it's had a lot... a, a big influence on the way that I work and the way that I think, and maybe th maybe that connection seems more natural to me because of that. But I think part of the reason I like it so much is because there is, outside of academic worlds, outside of philosophical circles, there's not a place in culture to have really serious conversations. And if you take out the jokes tonight, there were some like really serious conversations. And what the skill is, is... T getting wrangling a bunch of, of people that are there to have a good time and there to have a few drinks and bring in a level of art where you're talking about a subject that maybe they wouldn't be open to unless it was peppered with jokes, unless you gave them those places to breathe every once in a while. And seeing that balance to me is the art and where those similarities really come together. And for me, and, and I realize that the two-drink minimum is a money-making um, uh, opportunity, but I was kind of thinking, what is our two-drink minimum in activism, right? Yeah. Because I actually did feel more comfortable hearing the jokes after that second drink, um, <laughs> right? Because it is the – I wasn't thinking about it in tr as truth and pain, but I totally get that now. But it was more the vulnerability that they were putting out there uh, about themselves that, you know, I was feeling for them as they were sharing these very intimate mm -hmm. um, revelations about their lives. And it's – yeah, for me, it was just hard. So the truth – to drink minimum made it easier to just relax into the pain that they were sharing on stage. And I, I wonder, do we have an equivalent in activism that we kind of think about as a way of easing people into um, the issues or discussions that we want them to have? Yeah, we often, the first thing we do is walk up to people and say, do you know how many people are dying? <laughs> 
Is that it? Yeah. That's our two drink minimum. Yeah, exactly. oh, no, no. That's okay. because we're not giving the two drink minimum. There's no sort of easing in. It's just sort of hitting people over the head. It's like people are dying and wake up. And it's like if someone came in and did that, we just be like, oh, man, you're a bummer, right? But it's the, it's both the two-drink minimum and the setting it up as drama and laughs, which allow that sort of really sort of easing one into what's really sort of hard pain sometimes. But the, the two-drink minimum, if we're talking about that as a way to get people into into a mood or into a space, it's a real shortcut for that. I, I, it's not the greatest <laughs> Way and the the funny thing I noticed that I hadn't seen before was a three drink maximum because they it the show is about two hours and they still want your attention they want you to be loose but they don't want you to be out of it right and and that boundary of like you got to cut loose but not too far that like I've tried to bring that to projects right like you want people playing within a certain boundary you want them to play you don't want them to stand on the sidelines and watch so. The two drink minimum is getting them into the action, getting them into playing and performing or, or being a part of it. But don't, don't get too crazy. You know, like we still have a job to do here. And it is that level of professionalism that it was very much connected to because there was an intellectualism behind many of the performances tonight. Yet they didn't um, they didn't preach yeah. to us at all uh, but they just took us on these different journeys and it yeah I was I was really struck by that it's like oh wow you just took me to this new place um, there's thought there's practice definitely behind it and yeah they were structuring it in a way that were, they were talking to us but that you could see that they've been thinking a lot about it that they've been putting a lot of thought into it Yet they were very, you know, was accessible uh, in a way that I could see it as familiar. But I, I could recognize that they uh, have been thinking about and, and studying in, in some ways about the issues that they were taking us to. One of the things that I think we saw on stage, because it's live comedy and particularly with some pretty high end comics, is some of their jokes weren't that great. And what they were doing was that they were working out material. Mm -hmm. And this is why these big comics come to the comedy cellar, is to actually work out material. And you could see that with Aziz. You know, some of his stuff was great. He had a long medium, like in the middle of his performance, this sort of long joke that actually didn't actually quite pick up any place. And it's, and I loved that because it's like, oh, yeah. You don't always go into this knowing everything. What you do is you do drafts, you do iterations, and then you find out how far you can go before people start going, oh, man, no, don't say that. Or, you know, that you have to push it up a little bit if it starts becoming too long without the punchline. And so you could see the actual the mechanisms and the workings out of the creating of the great comedy. You can't theorize it, right? Like, you can't sit at home, write a bunch of jokes, and be like, this is going to kill. Like, people that do that are not successful. The, the, it's an, an art form that requires you perform the draft in front of an audience in order to, to get to the final sort of performance that maybe is televised or videotaped or documented on an album, right? I think that's something that we try to teach in the workshops that we do that you probably understand Leo is like 
you got to get out there and try it. You can't just plan for three months and, and, and plan for perfection and expect it to go well. Mm-hmm. You got to get into the small club and try it out with people and see what goes too far and see what doesn't. And then, you know, figure out how to perfect it and polish it. Mm-hmm. In order to make comedies, I mean, there are like two things that are f- very, very important, actually. One is the, what we call the premise right, which is the truth that is in one situation, in a particular situation. And then it's the thing that uh, we call the perspective, right, which the, perspe- the perspective is the, the way you look that situation. How you look at the world. How, how yeah. you look at that concrete situation. What happened in activism is like, I mean, you have the truth in one situation, right? Like, that's why... A lot of activists are very sad because, I mean, they are dealing with dramas, right? That's the truth on that situation they are yeah. dealing with. What they forget is the perspective. And that perspective can be, I mean, different, right? You can actually adopt different perspective to so, the same situation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that funny point of view is what yeah, the yeah. brings, right? Yeah. The funny point of view comes when you actually adapt a, a, a perspective into that situation that is not the one that everybody expects. Like, for instance, we are working with people who is about to be evicted, so we are sad and we are going to be angry also. Yeah. That's a perspective that you could actually uh, expect. And you it's know? not surprising. It's yeah. not surprising, right? Yeah. In order to make comedy but not because just to make comedy just because you want to make comedy just because you think that comedy actually can bring you closer to the truth that you are dealing with right it's very important to think about which perspective i'm going to adopt how i'm going to deal with this concrete situation right and here i mean tonight when you go to a stand-up comedy what happened is like there is a premise also working there which is not on you know on the scripts they are actually using but it's also that we all are audience of a comedian of a com- of a comedy right mm-hmm. so that's a, a premise you went there because you want to laugh so you accept a lot of things that actually out from there you don't right so in activism it seems like there is you know a premise that we all accept uh, that is about one concrete drama and that premise gives you a perspective. So how we change those kind of perspectives is one very important question in order to get closer to the truth, you know what I mean? I would say the difference for activism is actually that we're, as activists, we're more loose with the audience. So that if the audience doesn't respond to us, we're more readily able to look for a new audience than say, oh, well, let's rework our material. So <laughs> that kind of, if a joke falls flat, right, it's like they're, these guys seem to be, you know, oh, okay, and they called us on it when the joke wasn't working, but you know that they're going to rework that joke, whereas we come back with the same lines as activists <laughs> over and over again, and we're going to look for the audience that's going to react to our message, yeah. not try to think yeah. about changing our message. And that audience often just becomes ourselves. Yes. <laughs> well, so And what you're kind of saying is that we blame the audience for not getting the joke. Sure, they're stupid. They don't get it. They're yeah, not yeah, yeah. educated enough. They don't understand. If they knew what we knew, they would be with us. See, right. I think comedians go through a similar thing. There's like a spectrum of what comedy is, and it 
and us planning this, I, ha- I kind of had to articulate it. It's like, on the one hand, what happens at the Comedy Cellar, maybe not tonight, but generally, is like a little bit more on the philosophical side and what you know would be called comedy rooms or um, places where the, it's not just people showing up because they want to see comedy and they don't know who the people are, which is kind of what we did. <laughs> but when you have an audience that just wants to be entertained, there are comedians that are just entertainers and they'll say whatever to make you laugh. You know, a really extreme example would be, and this is maybe not fair, but Gallagher, right? Like I'll go up there and there's no jokes. I'm just going to smash a bunch of stuff with a hammer. It's so funny. It's entertaining to watch. If you just want to go and see something crazy, the philosophical side, it's like not as strong. Those moments where you're like, Oh wow, I just got taken to, a place I didn't expect to be taken, those aren't going to happen there. What the MC did really well was wrestle with the audience. Like, he's got to get all these people who've just walked in, there's waiters and waitresses walking around, all together on the same page. It's really the job of an organizer, right? A really good organizer (laughs) is getting everyone together, getting their attention, and pulling the room together. And and there there is a tension there with that audience and so you have to play that entertainment card a little bit and he's he's the guy that has to do most of that entertainment work in order so the phil- philosophical people can do their work yeah i just want to pick up on something there because one of the things that's so evident in like a comedy club is it is about a relationship and it's like a relationship which is being created between the comics and the people in the audience. Um, Oftentimes as activists, we just go on a street corner and just preach at people. And if they're not there and they're not listening to us, well, sooner or later they will be. In 20 years they'll understand the truth or what have you. But in comedy, if you don't create a relationship, it is so painful. That is just nobody laughs and you bomb. And what that MC was very good at doing is actually creating that relationship. And comedy really, it takes two to actually make a joke work. You can preach just by yourself, but you can't tell a joke just by yourself. A joke only becomes activated when other people laugh. And that's something we need to think about as activists. We're pretty good at going out and preaching, but are we good at sort of building relationships where other people fill in the other part of our message so it becomes theirs as well i wrote the uh, like a similar note but the one word i wrote is training like the mc was doing the job of training the audience and how to be an audience and he did it in this in a course of about five five or ten minutes and they would come back and sort of reteach you but what you were saying about you know um they would scold you for not laughing it's in a way like training you like all right everybody pay attention here i'm this might be a little bit more difficult here. Come on. That helps the whole atmosphere of the room. Yeah. I mean, if you want to laugh, you need two elements. Right? The first one is like cruelty. <laughs> That's what you need, right? <laughs> cruelty? Yeah. It has to be cruel. Otherwise, you don't laugh. I mean, there must be pain in okay. the joke, right? right. Yeah, and yeah. the second one is like um, you have to be on experience that this, I mean, something happened unexpected. Something yeah. that you didn't expect it before. Mm-hmm. If you can tell what is going on and what is coming after, you will never laugh, right? The cruelty, when we talk about activism, we, I mean, we deal with that all the time, right? The social dramas are full of cruelty. The thing that we don't do very well is this unexpected thing, you know what I mean? Because a protest or a demonstration is just like a theater piece. The problem is that everybody knows the script, 
like uh, how the script is going to develop and how mm -hmm. things are going to be. So for me, the funny thing comes when actually you can create an action or a way of protest or something that the people who is involved, they cannot expect it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that actually opens the space for the audience to be smart and to be active. They feel like not everything is already done before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The root is so they planned. can add something into it, and they are always very um, happy about having this experience. That oh, I didn't expect that, so I can actually add something here. The frame is open. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What I saw today is, um, and the comedians were noting it also. It's like the reaction based upon who they were being cruel towards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when they were making the anti-Muslim jokes, the audience... And I was curious about that. Like, what would people participate in and what wouldn't they? Uh, so when they were making the anti-Muslim jokes, uh, you know, the room became more silent. When he had the Wall Street guy joke, that was very mm -hmm. funny. The Jeb Bush joke, uh, very funny. But there, there were those moments that I was curious about race that they were taking the audience toward that were edgy but not cruel. Right, right. Because cruelty uh, has a certain limit. You can make fun using cruelty and we, you need it in order to make fun, but you cannot forget the humanity. As soon as you forget that, if you go farther than mm -hmm. humanity, then, you know, it's not funny anymore. And I thought that was evident in because there was a French person in the audience. There was, of course, many jokes about the French. And it was interesting to see how the different comics handled that because some of the early comics actually did very cruel jokes and actually jokes of which you knew what the ending was. It was played into the stereotypes about the French. Mm -hmm. And then one of the later comics, because at a, any comedy show, it actually kind of ramps up so you get the best comics towards the end. Um, the, then he actually played with the French talking about Yo Play yogurt as his conspiracy against <laughs> Americans. But it was hilarious because it actually was as much about being American as it was about the French, yeah. and it was completely unexpected. Yeah. I had no idea where it was going to actually end up. And that was this sort of place of which, oh, I think he's going in this direction. Oh, it went someplace yeah. else. Yeah. And that was the moment I was like, that's funny. And that's the kind, of, the kind of humanity I was actually talking about right now. Because that guy was, he was doing was actually attacking the French in order to talk about the Americans. So he included himself into the joke. So that created a kind of humanity between the French guy and him, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are both in the same boat. There's a, an idea. I, I should admit that I taught a class called Truth and Comedy at uh, School and Museum of Fine Arts when I was there. And um, this, I forgot where we pulled it from, but it, it came up in the class a lot. The idea of punching up versus punching down. And punching up is the weaker person fighting a, more, a stronger person. And if someone is seen as punching up, you root for them, right? So if it seems like a less powerful person, a Muslim person defending themselves against a more powerful oppressor or something in, in the context of a joke, then we root for that person. This might be an American thing. I don't know. Uh, but I think it's a human thing. And punching down is when it's a more powerful person 
attacking a, it's seen as attacking a weaker person even in the context of just making a joke right mm-hmm. so if it's it's a white guy making a joke about these muslims then people are more like well wait a second right because there there's power at play here right. it does it doesn't always land as well at the same time there's a competition or a competing interest here because i think part of especially live comedy is an endurance of the audience of like how far can we go like what kind of audience are you can what crazy thing can i say and to see where that line is and and so, so some of the some of the comics took that a little too far i think but i agree with that i see i am struck by how gender is you know the exception Not to that, that role yeah. right there were jokes about you know pushing women off of beds about killing uh a female prostitutes about you know, mothers and girlfriends. And it was, you know, I was actually sitting there, you know, and I was imagining, I wonder if I'm going to be alive when this is seen as the violence that it is. Because right now it sits within this realm of just right comedy, because the audience is laughing with the men and women, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the room. And it's not seen... Yeah, there there wasn't even the discomfort that you get. I got to, in the context of that class, do you know mm-hmm. W. Kamal Bell? He's a great comedian. Oh, yes, 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 Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, and we got to interview him. And one of the students asked him a question, which was, do you think that laughing is a form of agreement? So if would all the people in that audience be in agreement in some way? And he's like, absolutely not. It's it's only good joke writing. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. like you you will find yourself laughing at things that you disagree with if it's a well written joke, and I think there is something I don't quite know how to explain it. Maybe Steve, you can take a shot at it, but where it's about it's about crossing the line, especially live comedy. It doesn't happen on TV specials as much. If it does, it's notable. It doesn't definitely doesn't happen on late night TV when you have like a seven minute comedy set. But there's something about being in person and pushing the limits and actually attempting to say things that are offensive that you know the comedian doesn't doesn't believe or doubt that he believes. Sometimes maybe we're afraid that they do believe. But I, I don't think any of those people were like hateful, right? But they're they're trying to push the audience and cross the line. Well, I think, and actually, I don't have an answer to that. I was just scratching my nose. Um, but but now I'm going to come up with one. Um, but I think part of it is about exploring those things like misogyny, which are just part of our culture. And it's a way to explore those things in a sort of space, safe space and to see, well, what is it like to try this on? And it And it's... And it doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with it. In fact, you know, this is the sort of Aristotelian ideal of drama. It's actually a way to let go of it in some ways. Um, but the, the genius of the comic is towing that line because if it goes too far and if it isn't done with skill, then it becomes, man, you're just a misogynist. And, and that's when it just fails. Mm-hmm. I can kind of get it in terms of the nervous laughter, right? So the mm-hmm. fact that people laugh as a way of releasing the energy that's built up because of the nervousness. But I really thought that in the room that there wasn't a consciousness that what they were saying was offensive or violent in any way. And then 
I was thinking about it in in terms of those cultural shifts that happens about who becomes the brunt of the joke, right? So there was one Russian joke, right? In the yeah. 1980s, it would have been like way more Russian jokes, <laughs> <Sure>. right? Uh, <laughs> there were a lot more Muslim jokes. Uh, there was references to African Americans, but really not as the I would say there was one that was uh, like uh, using African Americans at the brunt of a joke, but really not really in the space of discomfort. I would say in that room, so that was a shift, right? So in that room, Muslims become more of the 20th century blacks mm-hmm. is now the Muslim in the comedy room. So but with yeah, Aziz, I feel like that shifted. Yes. Well, he, right, he's someone who his whole comedy is around uh, calling on race and calling on yeah. racist within that. But uh, And he brought the, the whole room to a different place with it. Yes, he did. But the comics before him yeah, um, yeah, were... Not as skillful. Not as skillful. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's also, you know, again, looking at that question of how people kind of workshop and what they're looking to learn and using this as a practice. Yeah. The fact that they're practicing on the bodies of people of color, of people of different religions, of women, is giving me an insight into what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and how we're, what's, what's the given uh, within mm-hmm. our society. Yeah, you can't imagine telling jokes like the jokes that were told about women, say, about black people. People would just be, whoa, you can't say that nowadays. Um, I don't know, actually. I, I Think about, I threw a black person off the top of my bed. Yeah, I, well, it depends on how it was done. And I think if uh, who's say, uh, who saying that? Well, I, who I'll say, who's black? saying it? Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about that. going to see live comedy. Um, and, and again, I think this is has to do with part of comedy being a surprise, right? And so to say something that no one expects, which includes things that can be racist or offensive or sexist, and and like that's part of the nature of it. And some people do it really well, and some don't. Anyway, one night really late, uh, went to see a show at Upright Citizens Brigade. It was like a, all these stand-ups. There were probably like 15 people in the show. I got there 11. The show ended at like 2.30 in the morning. It was really long and really intense. And, you know, you'd see comics 10 minutes at a time. It was its own, like, late-night endurance thing on its own. I literally, like, was, like, falling asleep in that show, being like, this is so funny, I have to stay awake. Um, <laughs> I was so tired, you know. Uh, but anyway, this was years ago, and Anthony Jeselnik was, like, trying stuff out for his first time on HBO. He's since had a show. People might know who he is. He sort of comes off as this very arrogant white guy who is conceited, like, full of himself, and makes an effort as a joke writer to write jokes about every sensitive topic possible and he's i heard an interview with him where he's like yeah i spent years trying to come up with a breast cancer joke that would land you know so for him it was like this writing challenge anyway so we're i'm like you know trying to stay awake and then he comes out and starts telling these jokes that just felt like i was being punched in the stomach you know i was just like, oh my god i can't believe he said that 
And it was just astounding, both that he was saying what he was saying and that it was still funny. Everyone knew it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. And he ha- and he u- leveraged the sort of confidence as a way of being like, yeah, that's my favorite joke, too. Like, that was one of the things he would l- insert in between. And people were like, no, you know, <laughs> whoa. And, and he could say horrible things. But is one of the things that he's doing taking the audience to a place where they laugh at something and then kind of calling them out on by saying this is our that's my favorite joke too what he's doing is very skillfully calling out going yeah that's horrible and we just laughed at it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's no, he's right. very aware and, uh, it's, it's not coming from a trying to hurt people yeah, yeah. and i watched louis ck do this this piece once and it's a, it's a famous piece of hers where he he gets people to start laughing about um, a long, involved story about this homeless man on Port Authority and how he smells and how, you know, this, this urine is all around him. And people in the audience are laughing because he's doing a really good description. And then he stops and says, you know, for the past couple of minutes, you've been laughing at a homeless man. And it's just boom. And that that's that sort of beauty is because that's they've developed a relationship where we're not they're not laughing at the subject of the joke. You're actually laughing at yourself. And you're acting that, oh my gosh, I would do something like that. And that's the mm-hmm. sort of brilliance. So like how do we use some of this stuff as activists? I mean, one of the things that we've got is that we we usually punch up. We rarely yeah. punch down. <laughs> and so we've got that in the bag, okay? But I think that our punching up often is mixed with sort of earnestness. Um, that we're so interested in just punching up that we actually, it's not very risky. We're not taking any surprises. The we're not actually making is good. It's just, there's too much and it goes too long. We need to mix <laughs> need the earnestness break. with some breaks. We need the jokes, surprise. So. We need the reveal. <laughs> well, um, Speaking of that punching up and that earnestness, I think, uh, I don't know if you've seen the uh, Amy Schumer skit on uh, rape and football, which is, right, it's uh, it's credited as, you know, uh, I don't know if this is actual, but uh, being the first uh, rape joke ever successfully, right? So it's told from, you know, a woman's perspective, from a feminist, from uh, someone who actually takes a look at this from both the violence in our culture, looking specifically, it's a play on Friday Night Lights, and it's a hilarious skit uh, that calls into question male culture, football culture, while being all about rape. Uh, and so it's awareness uh, building as well. But it's one of the best punching up jokes there is, uh, surprising. And, yeah, it's you walk away from that feeling, yes. You know, we're finally getting an insight into our culture in a way that we have never been able to before and I don't want to ruin it for you but definitely go see the clip but that is the uh, kind of things that I that I look for in terms of how do you how do you make revelations about the society that we're living in so that we can see it differently and that we can also change the context so that when we're doing our organizing, it doesn't seem as foreign or that we're the crazy ones trying <laughs> to talk about these things. And it becomes more of, oh, actually, no, those guys, they're revealing the truth or they're part of the norm. Yeah. Well, and I think this is why one of the things that we actually do pretty well is satire. 
And, you know, you know, going back to Swift and, well, what do we do with the poor people? Well, we should eat them um, <laughs> as, a, as a rational solution. And I, and I think that what satire does is exactly that, is it brings you to that dark place to show the insanity of the norm. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden we start laughing and we start laughing, we start feeling uncomfortable because it's way too close to actually what the real discourse is about race or about sex or about poor people. But we also get this sort of guilty pleasure at laughing because we're yeah. laughing at ourselves, we're laughing at our culture. And then the release is, yeah, that's insane. Um, sanity must be someplace else. <laughs> because actually you're recognizing yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's very important. Actually, was Oscar Wilde, the one who say like, if you want to tell the truth to someone, you better make them laugh. laugh otherwise, they will kill you, right? <laughs> yes. So because actually he's going to recognize himself in that if you actually talk about the truth. So laugh is a, about, it's a way of, you know, make people laugh. It's a way of a kind of contract you sign out. Like, hey, now we are going, now we are not going to kill each other, but, but, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. And that's very important for activism, right? Because we need to tell, to tell what we think is the truth in one situation, right? So um, in order to do that, there are like three classical conflicts you have to deal with. And tonight we saw all of them. Comedians tonight, they were using the three big comic conflicts that you can work with. One is like the person against his world or her world, right? That can be a normal person, right, in a strange world or a strange world or a strange person in a normal world, right? You can actually create that in several ways. And that always gives you a social conflict. They were using that tonight a lot. Like, you know, I'm racist, I'm normal, and all this world around me is just insane, right? So that is always talking about a social conflict, a social um, event. The other one is like person against person. Then it's a personal conflict always, right? All these conflicts are related. And all of them. That's kind of like the relationship stuff we were talking about. Yeah, and those, all those relationships, jokes that we were watching tonight Mm -hmm. were a kind of of example of this um, third conflict. And and the third one is like um, the person against himself or herself. They were using that a lot too, right? Talking very, very honest about what is happening with me. That's how I am, right? And a lot of them, they were using that also, mostly when they present themselves. Okay, I'm going to tell you something about myself. This is always something, you know, that is related with this kind of conflict. So for me, it's very interesting to think how these three conflicts can be applied into activism, right? Because the three level, the more uh, interior one, right? And the more personal one, and also the the social one, right? The, The context and myself, are actually the three spaces where, as I see the things, neoliberalism is actually acting, right? So if we are able to deal with these three funny conflicts in a way of actually showing the truth of one of one social situation, we can actually confront the neoliberalism in the three levels it works, because it's not only a social thing, it's also something that is actually operating inside of you. Right, mm-hmm. and it's also something that actually operates in your personal level. You know your relationships, your, you know. Yeah. So actually, it's serious stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, 
again, to bring it back to what activists can learn from this, is it asking too much to think about adding action to that, right? So it could be because of the two-drink minimum and the fact that comedy shows are at, you know, 9.30 p.m., not 9.30 a.m., that it's exhausting to go through the reveal, right? It's exhausting to deal with the conflict. Is it too much to ask or to think about adding action on top of the reveal, the education, the revelation, or should we be thinking about this more as, you know, passing the baton? I've always thought of it as comedy is a great way to get the essence of a story across. Like, not the whole history and the how and the why and the details, but you can get a little piece. And that that piece travels better through a joke or through something that's funny. Uh, the, or, you know, like, even a funny online video. Obviously, those travel much better than the sincere ones. Um, and then if you can line those up one after another, where you're you're getting a little bit of information and you're adding a joke and you do that over and over again, or you're taking somewhere someone to an uncomfortable place, like I always think of it as like you're shoving their head under the water, you know, and then like you give them a little breath, and the breath is mm-hmm. a joke, and then you shove their head back down again, you know, mm-hmm. and you just keep doing that, and that's how it feels sometimes when you're when you're in the watching a great comedian is it's like oh my god this is so hard i just oh good i can catch my breath oh it's so hard you know comedy is waterboarding right, yeah. right. <laughs> but i think waterboarding with a break yeah. um, and, and i think that that how we can build it into sort of actions actually is you start thinking about sort of traditional sort of tactics of activists let's have a march right they're, they're long and they're dreary and they're necessary, but they can be broken up at moments, okay? There can be sort of like stations where something surprising happens and moments happen. And we do this already by bringing in marching bands and by having performances. And, but to think about things about breaking stuff up between the heavy truth and pain and then that moment of surprise and levity – not to let people to escape, but to give them a breath, as Steve says, get their head out of the water bucket, and then bring people back in, but have that sort of rhythm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say, of all the things that we talked about, I can think about moments of within marches and demonstrations of truth and pain, but not surprise. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. everything to me, yeah. I, it's predicted. I know exactly yeah. what's yeah. going to happen. It's, it's it's the joke that you basically know the punchline <laughs> on, and so what we've yeah. got to think about is how to mix that up. Is like have that surprise, have that reveal, mm-hmm. have that unexpected thing. You're like, whoa, mm-hmm. and then bring you back down. <laughs> and I think also it's it's not easy. It's not easy. It's a it's a real art form to tell those to to write jokes to tell jokes. And it takes a lot of failure to do it well. We saw all those things tonight. And then the on top of that, the kind of default for most people that we're working with, they're great people and they're awesome and they're doing really great work, but they don't always get how important it is that there needs to be jokes mixed in. Mm-hmm. I remember being one quick example, went to a really early Wall Street protest right after the crash in October I think it was early November, and I was with a, a guy named Sam Gould, who's another artist, and they had all these chants about Wall Street that were very sincere and very earnest, and somehow me and Sam got the whole crowd chanting, Christmas is totally f***ed, Christmas, and it was like, you f***ed. 
Deaf Christmas. And no one expected it, and it was really funny. And then the woman with the megaphone would not continue that chant and went back over with the ones she had on the list, you know? And, like, that kind of stuff, you know, I think there's work we got to do in explaining why this is important and why it works. And the other thing that popped up into my head that I want to share is to remember that what is a surprise to the audience may not be a surprise to us because we've practiced it. And I think that's an area where we forget, right? So a lot of people in Baltimore will tell you what's happening in Baltimore is not a surprise, right? We knew that this was going to happen. And I think what we need to practice or build our muscles around is how to work when the surprise is for people who's not in the daily constant, you know, uh, work that we're doing. So it's a surprise to you, though it's not a surprise to us. And how do we act as if it's a surprise, even when it's not a surprise? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. I, one thing I do want to say, which is so obvious, but it's really fun to laugh. Like, I, you know, uh, it's, it's 11.30, you know, or that's now one, 1 o'clock. You know, it's way past my bedtime. <laughs> I got to get up at 5, you know, 6 o'clock to, to feed the kids and so on and so forth. I was energized. I was laughing. It was awesome. I have to go to a faculty retreat tomorrow. It's like putting a gun to my head, right? <laughs> but I was like, I was having fun. And I felt totally jazzed and energy. And it was great. And I just think laughter. And just to make laughter part of not just the demonstrations, but how we organize, how we relate to one another, telling jokes at meetings, it just makes life a lot better. But it's not easy to answer the question why your body loves that. Why your body, even being tired, wants to be there, right? It's not that easy as it seems because it's like, it's because actually you are learning something very important. So your body is actually there. He wants to be there because something important is happening when you when you are laughing. And it's all that important thing is related with the truth. You are learning the truth. So that is very important in order to survive. That's why you are hooked on that. You want more because you know, your brain knows that if you learn this, you will survive or you will actually live better or something. You yeah, know we I mean? could get into a whole thing about surprise and learning <laughs> and how surprise is required to learn anything. Yeah. Um, but we're going to have to save that for another show. I would just add the um, adding to the laughing, uh, seeing you all laugh was also exhilarating for me as Steve L it's just like I saw you laugh in a way that I've never seen before <laughs> and that was just surprising um, and then Steve D you were you were just like very loud at some moments and I was just like really that was funny to you? It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. You know. So it was yes yeah, so just also seeing people that you know laughing in a new way just you know it brings you into a different relationship as well. Yeah. They say that laughing is the way that we signal to other people that we're having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that, that's why people laugh in comedy clubs sometimes is they're just like, I'm having a good time. Yeah. It yeah. It doesn't even make I sense mean, as a joke. Today gym. was obvious that I was, I mean, what the guy, the showman at the beginning was doing was creating a community, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah Asking, yeah. where are you from? Yeah. So they, he was including that people in that room. So actually you feel like, okay, I'm surrounded with other people. I'm here. I'm with others. And we are different. We signed this contract. Like, we are going to laugh. So from now on, anything that happened, I will approve it. 
you know what I mean? I will accept it because I have my community here. I'm part of a, something. I'm part of a group, and that's and then very you important. Show that also. you're part of it, and you are, ha- and you're the, by laughing by yeah, that's how yeah, you like hey, here I am, I'm with you. Yes, yeah. that's the sign of that too. So uh, we talked about a lot of really great stuff. I wanted to mention that we will put up notes about this show on the Artistic Activism site, which is artisticactivism.org, and there's a link for the podcast. And we can put in um, links to that Amy Schumer video that you mentioned and other people so people can look at that and also find out about Leo Martin. Who's actually opening a school in Barcelona. Yes. And we will learn more about these kind of things. <laughs> right. And the Spanish, they know how to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next time on the Pop Culture Salvage Expedition. Yes. All right. Good night. Good night. Adios. Hasta la vista.